1: To
2: Welcome to the Catherine Zok Show. World. I'm Catherine Zocz, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zocz Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning are Reed Wilson and Lynn Lyons. Reed is already here, he's the early bird, and Lynn will probably be joining us later. But they're both, they co authored a book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle and Raise Courageous, Independent Children, which is something we have to assume that most of us want to do. Reed is a Ph.D. and he's a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He's author of Don't Panic, Taking Control of Anxiety Attacks, and has co-authored the book Stop Obsessing, How to Overcome Your Obsessions and Compulsions. So he is obviously an expert in the field of anxiety and uh, compulsions and obsessions. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Reed.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having us.
2: Well, as I understand it, um, and you both co-authored this book, you and, and uh, Lynn Lyons, and she's a social worker. When she gets on, I'll introduce her. But um, one in every five kids suffers from a diagnosable anxiety d- disorder. I mean, that's a pretty high statistic. Kind of oh, startling. It, I, yeah.
0: it is very high. We, we don't think it's on the increase necessarily, but, boy, the other interesting statistic is 65% of kids with an anxiety disorder have a parent in the house who's also diagnosable. So, so we've really got a, a set of problems within a family system that is relatively startling to us when we see what the numbers are.
2: Anxious parents, anxious kids. Is that what you're saying?
0: Exactly, yeah and you know we're not it's not we, there there's no anxiety gene that we found but it's clear from the research that it does travel in families so there's there's a tendency to be anxious and apprehensive we have uh, temperament issues, little infants that are easily startled and don't go with uh, strangers easily and so forth. So we've got some tendencies that are coming in, and then we've got modeling from parents that can also increase these troubles.
2: Well, the problem then seems overwhelming. If you have these anxious parents, how are you going to have anxious parents help anxious children who they've, in some sense, created within their own family?
0: Oh, well, that's exactly what... We think, too, and that's why, you know, the initial thing we did is we wrote a book for kids, <laughs> and <laughs> and and we just give that away on the Internet because I, we don't believe that you can take an anxious parent, teach him or her the skills, and have them be able to directly pass it down to the kids so we've got a you know a free ebook that the kids can read and it's a narrative and it's written by a little 14 year old girl as the, as a voice who's who's overcome it so so no exercises in it no forms or anything just stories about how you get better and so we're we're hoping that that one two punch Because we know in the research when people come in for therapy, if it's a child without a parent who's anxious, we can just work with a kid, and there, 80% of them will get better. If they've got an anxious parent and we just work with a child, under 40% of them get better. We have to bring the parents in and teach them skills as well, then... The kids are just as likely to get better as the other kids. So, so we know we've got our work cut out for us. That's absolutely true, and we're trying to hit both fronts, both the parents and the kids.
2: Well, if you're doing it online with the e-book for the kids, that's great because that's where they have access to it any time, right? But we have, they have to be able to identify. I think don't we have to? I, and we have, I think we should do this on the show too. Identify. Uh, what is anxiety? What's the difference between anxiety, let's say, and you're just a little bit nervous about things, and certain, you know, kids get nervous about taking tests, or some get nervous about playing a sports, Uh, but it wouldn't be defined as anxiety, so I, I think we need to kind of figure out what is anxiety, and what are anxiety-enhancing patterns with kids and with their parents?
0: Sure, and, and very pragmatic. If the child is backing away from activities, avoiding having difficulty falling asleep because they're anxious, not wanting to go to school, feeling, reporting symptoms of anxiety, and it begins to get in their way, and what typically they do is step back to get relief, then the parents are going to identify it, and the kids are going to identify it as Anxiety that needs to be addressed. So that, that's the simplest pragmatic way to be thinking about it. Every, as, you, as you say, everybody gets anxious when they do all kinds of things, but when the kid starts running up in their head around the worries and those worries start taking over, that's when we're going to notice. The crazy thing is the, the treatments that we know work the best are illogical. They don't make sense to people, and that's why people have to get some understanding here. When you get afraid of something, your tendency is to back up. When you become anxious, your tendency is to calm down, and both of those things are the wrong moves. All right. Well, we have Lynn here. Maybe she can explain to us why they're the wrong
2: moves. Uh, Lynn Lyons, she is a licensed uh, social worker clinical social worker, and a psychotherapist in private practice, and she specializes in the treatment of anxi- anxiety disorders in adults and children, and has worked, obviously, closely with Reed and, uh, and, and co-authored this book. Uh, now, we're, welcome to the
1: show, Lynn. Good morning. Good morning. I, I don't know if you were able to hear Reed's last I, comment. I just, I just heard about the last two sentences.
0: Where well, I was just saying that the, the crazy thing is that the interventions that we know work best are illogical. Right. You know, our, our instinct is to step away from things that we're afraid of, and our instinct is to try to calm down when we're anxious. And those two things perpetuate the problems.
1: Right. And that's what happens with parents and with teachers and even with a lot of other helping professionals is that they're trying to sort of step in and make the child feel more comfortable and make the child feel okay about things and so what we're asking the parents in the schools to do is really pretty counterintuitive. We're wanting to support the child moving toward uncertainty and toward discomfort and that's a new concept for a lot of people over and over and over again when I talk about it in this way and when Reed talks about it in this way, people their their eyebrows go up. What, what do you mean? We're, we're not supposed to provide information we're not supposed to make them comfortable. You know, it takes
2: a little bit parents, of I mean you're describing and I maybe I did I, I it's too late now but I did all of those things that you describe I guess they are <laughs> the wrong thing. And your but kids you turned out okay. Pr- <laughs> you have 7 key <laughs> principles that foster change. I mean that's what you talk about in your book. Yes. Um and so these are the ones and they're unconventional, okay? You described the ones that are conventional that I think you're right. It's Intuitive, it's kind of like we want to do that. You want to kind of calm things down and, and step away from them, and you're saying, hey, that doesn't work. So what do we do?
0: Well, part, you know, part of what we, we talk about is you need to be willing to be uncertain and uncomfortable on purpose. That, so not just tolerate those things, but actually seek them out, because that's how worry and anxiety starts to take over families. People go to get reassurance. And so kids start asking questions over and over and over again, the same question. What time are we going to get there? Are you sure we're going to make it? Or are you going to show up to pick me up and so forth? And if you're going to reverse that whole process, you, you cannot accommodate those questions and the child needs to learn that they can tolerate not knowing and going to go ahead and seek those out. The other crazy, you know, can we use that word crazy thing that we suggest that kids do and parents teach their kids to do is learn to talk to their worry, which is personify the worry, get it outside of them and recognize that there is a younger, more insecure part of them that they need to take care of, or tell it to stop bossing them around. So we go through a whole set of skills around how to begin to talk to your worry and get it out of your life instead of have it dominate you.
2: Well, let's take one of the worries, and, and either one of you or both of you can address this, but let's take a worry that a kid has, a typical thing, something that they may be anxious about, and the exercise that you would apply to that particular worry in order to help the kid you know the kid to be able to kind of, to get o- uh, can I use the word get over it i don't know
1: or to address
2: it to address this anxiety
1: mm-hmm. so y- y- get over it i mean the thing the thing that it's really important to remember to to talk to with with parents and kids is that we're not saying anxiety won't show up. Anxiety is a natural state. It happens on a regular basis. Anytime you're facing a challenge, stepping into something new, there are plenty of things in life that are going to make us feel uncomfortable. So the goal isn't to eliminate the anxiety. It's to expect it to show up and then, as Reed was just saying, to be even more provocative and say, well, let's see if we can get it to show up. Let's an example.
2: example, and, uh, you know, before you go on, because I think we have people who are listening who are not clinicians or are not professionals, yep. and they're going to say, okay, so what are you talking about? My kid, every time he has to take a test, a math test, gets so anxious mm-hmm. and at home and gets anxious in the classroom, mm-hmm. and he, he or she can't seem to be able to, to handle
1: that. So what do you do? What would you, either, yeah?" So, so the first step is to normalize it. Of course anxiety is going to show up when you're taking a test because it's important to you and you want to do well. So we're just going to expect that anxiety to show up. But rather than be surprised by it, rather than be shocked that anxiety has showed up the morning of a math test, we're going to say, oh, so here's anxiety again and then have a way to talk back to it. Well, hello anxiety. Yep, I mean here, you're, you're doing your job well, aren't you? You're showing up on the morning of a math test and this is what you say you say you can't handle it this is going to be too hard what if you make a mistake and we really want to make anxiety predictable and even boring and so the next step might be for a kid who's going into a math test is to have them say all right so let's see let's see how many different things your anxiety is going to throw at you when you're getting ready to take a math test let's just you know so you're going to take your math test you're going to feel uncomfortable So let's predict what the anxiety is going to say. And let's predict even what your body is going to do. And then you're going to go in and you're going to take the math test and you're going to notice what it is that your anxiety is doing to you. And you're going to be able to react to it in a different way. So it's not that we're trying to eliminate anxiety. and that's, it's, it's the fight against the anxiety that makes it stronger. We're just going to accept it. We're going to let it be there. And we're going to move into it. So the one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to say to a kid, well, then you don't have to take the math test. Or we'll set up something special so that you can take the math test and have as, l- as much time as you want to take the math test and we'll help you work through the problems. We want to say you're going to take the math test, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to separate yourself from the anxiety a little bit, and then we're going to see what happens. So it's about stepping toward it rather than stepping back from
0: it. And Same this is counter to what we've been doing all, all along. You know, we accommodate kids. Uh, you know, if you're having a panic attack, you can go to the vice principal's office until you feel better, and then you can come back in the classroom. If you're having trouble falling asleep in, in your bedroom by yourself, I'll lay down beside you in the bed until you're asleep, and I won't leave until you're absolutely asleep. We're, we're accommodating the worry and anxiety, which builds it and reinforces it, and that's keeping the kids from developing skills of, of managing the distress instead of getting rid of it. Don't
2: you think, Reed and Lynn, that this is something of a generational thing? I mean, I'm thinking about my generation, and I guess I was sort of kidding in a way because I think I did some of what you're talking about with my own kids. You know, you you have to make it real, as you. and I think, Lynn, you described it. Make the anxiety real. As you say, talk about it. And expectations, that's what came to mind when you were describing, well, when you actually get in the classroom and you're sitting there and you're scared, you may have a stomach ache, you may have a mm-hmm. headache, you may—you know, this is what's going to happen, and then it becomes
1: less mysterious and less mm-hmm. scary. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when, when, kid co- when kids come in to see me and, you know, they're 8 or 9 or even 6 or 7 or 13 or 14, I do a lot of... Um, information about how anxiety works. I mean, I think that one of the things that Reed and I say over and over again when we are in front of professionals, in front of parents, and certainly in the book, is that anxiety is not that mysterious. It looks big and dramatic. It, it can really put on quite a show, but it's really rather redundant. And generationally, I think, you know, so this is my generation. I've got, I've got two kids that are still in school, still raising these two, two boys. How old are they? They are 13 and 15. Okay, so middle so,
2: school, freshmen. yeah.
1: Yeah, one is a sophomore and one is in, in eighth grade. But the idea that, that I have to make sure that all of their homework is done or walk them to the bus stop or drive them to school in the morning and, and – My kids don't have cell phones for the very purpose of I don't want them to feel as if they have to check in with me every hour or every 15 minutes. Um, I want them to know that they're out in the world and that they've developed skills and that if something happens, they have the resources to handle it. And I think our generation and I think technology makes it so much easier for parents to really make sure that they know exactly what and where their child is at all times, which is just a breeding ground for anxiety if you have that propensity. I agree with that, but I think that we can even step back. I'm not so sure that it's just because we have communication
2: and cell phones and the internet i i think it goes it starts in the very beginning i've noticed mm-hmm. i mean from putting and i've mentioned this on the show to other i guess child psychologists or social workers but i mean i see young parents who have put uh, uh, plastic or rubber around their coffee table so that the kid can't bang his head on the coffee table or every single plug has to be mm-hmm. covered up so that you can't, you don't teach your children well, you can't put your finger in the plug and uh, it's, you know, so they always, there's this protective um, helicopter <clears throat> parenting thing that begins at age from the moment of birth, I think. I-
1: well, there's a whole catalog of baby safety devices. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really rather remarkable. And, it, and it, we joke about having kids wear helmets when they're learning to walk, but you can buy one. Um, parents carrying around baby monitors when their child is napping so that they can hear every breath. So it really, it really does start very early.
0: <laughs> But yeah. here's the opportunity. I think, you know, parent, you know, when I was young, I could sit in my dad's lap while he's driving the car, and we didn't have seatbelts, and certainly that's not the way it is now. But both, both fathers and mothers now are attending more to their children. So if we can help them understand the best way to communicate with them about these issues, then they're ready-made to start following up on those things and and instilling them in their their children. As you were saying, Catherine, we, we start early enough then we can get it going. I've got a little granddaughter, my first grandchild now, and who's eight months old, and boy, didn't she grab my glasses the other week when I was visiting her, and her parents came right up and were saying, no, we're taking her hand, using the word no. I would never have thought to start training the eight-month-old not to grab someone's glasses. So, so I think the young parents today are ready for this information. It's just, just, just not out there.
1: Yeah, I, and it's just, I, Yeah, go ahead. I think, too, that the skills that Reed and I are talking about in the book, they're, we're talking about anxiety, but these are really good preventative skills. You know, untreated anxiety in kids is a real fast road to depression, Later on in life, we know that anxiety precedes depression. So when you start talking to parents in a preventative way, not in a pathological way or a diagnostic way, not even in a mental healthy way, but just about the skills of problem solving, of handling uncertainty, of moving into things that make you feel uncomfortable and discovering how you get through them, those are really solid skills that parents should teach their kids regardless of whether or not they have anxiety or not. Yeah, so this is the beginning to learn they get... how to
2: navigate the waters. I mean, mm-hmm. if you do it in the context of your family and school when it's appropriate and then preparing you for the outside world, do either one of you think that this is also a fast track to drug addiction, alcohol addiction? Um, that if, is there any connection between that and, and handling or not handling anxiety? Um, in, a, in a way that's going to be uh, helpful
0: to the, to the
2: family, to the kid, to the parent, um,
0: or, well, or is there no connection? Very connect? interesting research that yeah. came out just last year was, and I was just about to say this about uh, helping develop an autonomous child, is that kids who are allowed in their families to argue with their parents to present their side of it and be listened to and responded to by their parents are significantly better able to resist drug and sex activities encouragement to with their peers so you know when we when we have the old school parent who says my kids must learn to obey me then they they're trained to obey someone and as they grow up they're going to start obeying somebody else after the parents. So we really, you know, once we get into adolescence and and pre-adolescence, we want these children to have an opportunity to be expressing themselves, pushing back from parents, and so forth, because we'd rather do it now and have them feel respected than later on have more of these troubles. So I think you're exactly right.
3: How do you,
2: getting back to something that we alluded to, but anxious parents, because, I mean, before you came in, Lynn, uh, Reed was talking about the fact, you know, if you have parents that aren't anxious but the child is anxious, it's much easier to deal with an anxious child. Mm-hmm. But if you have a combination of the two,
1: mm-hmm. how
2: do you work with these anxious parents? Because it would seem to me they'd be very resistant to this kind of un- these unconventional exercises and techniques for change.
1: Well, I-, I actually find that they're not all that resistant. I think that if you're anxious yourself. And you've got an anxious child, people usually arrive in my office really exhausted. And when I start explaining to this and when, when, you know, I was in front of 200 parents last night who came because they're anxious and or their child is anxious. And when I lay this out, people are so grateful for this information. They have been trying to do it their way. And when we describe these skills and when we talk to uh, parents and kids very concretely about what makes anxiety bigger and what makes anxiety weaker, they get it. So I don't, of course, every once in a while there's a, a, a parent or a child who says, oh, I'm not going to step into that uncertainty. You're, you're nuts. You want me to do what? But most of the time they're very receptive to this information. They're looking for something that makes sense. And when you, when you explain this, Simply and concretely, it really makes sense. It sounds crazy at first, but not for long. How, does, how are the schools reacting, the
2: teachers, and does there have to be any kind of a connection when you're doing, I'm calling it a program or a way mm-hmm. of, 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 of what would you, a, a method, I guess, yeah. of working with anxiety and kids and their families. Do you need like a coordination kind of thing with the teachers and the, yes. the families?
1: yes. So um I work a lot with with schools. Um schools are doing the best they can. They've got teachers have a lot that they have to handle in the classroom. But I would say that almost across the board if I go into a school that's dealing with an anxious child, they're accommodating and providing comfort and reassurance um and parents and teachers together really need to be speaking the same language. So you want to get in and start as soon as you can setting up a program where there is a plan if the child is going to leave the classroom and go to the school nurse or go to the guidance counselor, if when they get there, there they're going to start working the skills. They're going to start being cued to talk back to anxiety and to start handling things on their own in the classroom as quickly as possible. So school's schools almost uh, uh, entirely across the board will set up plans that accommodate the anxiety. Yeah, so they need a lot of help and training. But w- so which, as soon as think, they
0: leave the classroom, the the work begins to get them back yes, into the classroom right, 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 as quickly right, as possible without right. having mm-hmm. to remove the distress.
2: Right. What has been the reaction of the medical community, and I, I guess I really mean pediatricians, for example, because they too may be a part of it, depending on you know how anxious the child is.
0: Well, I think, you know, many of the, for all mental health problems, they end up with a pediatrician first before they get their referral out. And we've got some issues around, you know, gatekeepers like pediatricians are are wanting to quickly help someone, and there is a a, a trend around writing medication prescriptions to assist the child in calming down. So we are also trying to work on the medical community too. They need to know what options there are out there. So we've got to be training the mental health professionals on yes. how to do some of this stuff and also then training the gatekeepers to say here are the, research, here are the people to turn to to let these child, this child learn those skills as opposed to having to place them on uh, medication. Pediatricians are no different than physicians who have chronic pain patients. They don't want to keep seeing these kids over and over again they feel helpless like the parents do so they also are absorbing this information when we can pass it on to them
2: well do you think there's an over diagnosis or of for instance childhood uh, uh, mental health issues like you know add and ocd and that if they adopted your plan or your program you wouldn't see so much of that diagnosing and then over medication with pediatricians for example
0: Well, uh, Lynn may have an answer too. But you know, one as you bring up ADD, you know, there is some confusion around this. People, kids, are quickly diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. But when you think about a child who has anxiety or worries or obsessions, of course, they're going to have trouble concentrating. Half their mind is having all these worries. So, so I think there can be a misdiagnosis. You know, you you want to diagnose someone with something that you know how to treat. And so there's a, there's a sense of comfort in labeling somebody with attention deficit disorder because we have this medication that they can work with. But if we can scratch the surface and get a little better diagnostics going on, we can find out, oh, wait a minute, the distractions that they're feeling is their apprehension and their anxiety.
2: So, what should parents? Either one of you can answer this, or both. What should parents be looking for specifically in terms of symptoms? I mean, some say some. A mother is listening to the show right now, and she says, "You know, I think my kid is anxious," and but I'm not sure. Uh, What should they do? And what specific symptoms do they look for at home?
0: Not just. You go ahead, Lynn.
1: If there, if 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 the need to control the environment is big enough that the family and the school are having to accommodate to keep a routine in place that's a warning sign. If a child is very rigid in the way things have to be or they fall apart, that's a warning sign. If a child starts asking repeated questions and needs a lot of reassurance about when are you going to pick me up, um, what what time are you going to be back, I you can't leave and go um, out with your friends because you need to stay with me, um, that's a warning sign. So if if a, a family, the, the thing that's interesting is that lots of times a family will be dealing with anxiety for a really long time, but they've all figured out how to calm the, the anxiety. So I, I look at anxiety as sort of a cult leader, C-U-L-T, and if if everybody's in the cult and everybody's obeying anxiety's demands, you can have anxiety in the family and sort of go through the anxiety's demands and it's not all that disruptive, but What happens is when you try and go outside of anxiety's rule book, that's when things fall apart. So difficulty at bedtime is often a big warning sign. Um, The amount of time that a family feels like they are accommodating and the level of distress that occurs when a child's routine is broken or when anxiety's rules aren't followed, those are big warning signs as well. So if you feel like you constantly have to manage your child's demands around, certainty and anxiety, and if you feel like you're constantly reassuring your child that things are going to be okay, same questions, is the house going to burn down, is this, is that, those are all warning signs that parents should pay attention to.
0: And I would throw one more in there, which is perfectionism.
1: Yes, And very
0: often anxiety is disguised as perfectionism. I've got a you know, I've got a twenty minute assignment for homework and it's taking me two and a half hours. Parents complain about that all the time. And that is driven by an obsessive need to be perfect.
2: But and this is one last comment because our next guest is here. But I mean, you have a very important book. I think sometimes perfectionism is particularly in our culture is can be rewarded by parents. Here they have the kid who's you know wants to have the perfect paper and get into the right school and is so obsessed Mm -hmm. that maybe unbeknownst to the parents, I mean, you know, they don't necessarily mean to do that, but they kind of reward that behavior, uh, which, as you're saying, is if it's exaggerated, it's not. It's not, it's not good for the child or the family. It's been great talking to you both today, and uh, a book that I think uh, could be picked up by the kids, the parents, and the grandparents, as you said, Reed. Um, anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle, and raise Courageous, I like that word, Courageous, and Independent Children by Reed Wilson, Ph.D., and Lynn Lyons, L-I-C-S-W. Thanks so much for, for being with us today.
0: Thanks, Thank Catherine. Thank you.
2: Great. We're going to take a short break, so I don't want anybody to go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America and World Talk Radio. Coming up next is Stephanie Meyer. She's our next guest, and she is going to be uh, talking about bullying under attack, true stories written by teen victims, bullies, and bystanders. We'll be back in a minute.
0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America.
1: Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America talk radio network host? How about what's new with our network?
2: we're back. I'm Catherine Zuck, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zuck Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com dot com and World Talk Radio. Joining me now is uh, Teen Link magazine editor Stephanie Meyer. Uh, bullying under attack: True stories written by teen victims, bullies, and bystanders. Uh, bystanders is the. Uh, a book that she has edited. These are true stories written by, as I said, the teen, the victims, the bullies, and the bystanders. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Stephanie.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure.
2: Yeah. Well, unfortunately, bullying is a hot topic. I mean, most we know that, right? I don't even think we have to go into the statistics. But I don't think you can turn on the television and go on the net, and there's some always some incident about bullying, um, and we seem to focus on the person or persons who are doing the bullying. And less on, so those are the bullies, but the victims and the bystanders kind of get put, pushed into the background. But So you address all of these groups, and uh, so what What do we want to start with, because uh, they're, it's a, a very interesting concept, I think it's important not to just
3: understand the bully, but the uh, the bu- those being
2: bullied and the bystander
3: so, absolutely yeah. it 's really a three pronged issue and and very often the bully has been bullied, and the the victim you know is is at times has been the bully as well so it's it, they 're all very much melding one into the other, um, and I think that, you know, unfortunately we probably have all been the bystander um, and watched Whatever is transpiring and, and not having the courage to, to step in and make a stand, and that's very hard. And when you're a young person watching this happen, um, it's even that much more difficult because you're so afraid of becoming the victim. Yourself. I think, Stephanie,
2: you know, as I was thinking about it and uh, doing this interview with you, I thought, you know, I probably at some time in my life have been all three, as you're, you're suggesting. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I've been bullied. And th- uh, let's start with that, being bullied as the victim um, and w- Is sometimes I I wonder is it bullying or just being teased or you know do we have to give a definition What's the difference
3: between teasing and bullying? I think that's a very very good point to make because um, you know clearly teasing goes on and it and it can be very innocent and it can be you know not hurtful. It can just be you know being cute or being funny or whatever but i think that it clearly can lead to um you know it it's the degree to which the the teasing or picking on you know results in and and very often that's a fine line and i think that um you know it can very often start in elementary school in fact a lot of these stories in bullying under attack um you know these these victims began in began being picked on in elementary school and it wasn't really recognized as more than that and but they suffered tremendously and became and became the victim unfortunately um so You know, it really is clearly a very, a very big problem and, and it really needs to be looked at in, you know, all the facets of bullying and all of the people involved. I mean, it's not a simple topic. Yeah, it's Uh, not a
2: simple topic. And as you're talking about being bullied in elementary school, for instance, and, and it can have obviously, uh, you know, far reaching effects for a kid who feels like they were bullied. But what, let's take that example, because I like to get back to the teasing and the bullying. Uh, I mean, what if you have, and maybe this was addressed in some of these, what they were con, called con, conversational essays, which, um, which they are, um, and what we can learn from these, can, if you have a kid perhaps who's, you know, maybe has low feelings of self-esteem, doesn't feel so great about himself, and some other kid comes along and makes fun of the outfit they're wearing that day, and maybe does this once a week, or does it fairly consistently, is, is that bullying, or is the person the, the who is the victim um,
3: just a little overly sensitive? Um <laughs> That's. I mean, it, teachers deal with this every day, right? Absolutely. And I think, I think again, it's the 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 degree to which it's done. I think it's the frequency, and I think it's very often the the intent um, of the bully. Um, you know, if they're if they're being mean and they continue to be mean to one particular kid for no apparent reason, I think that's more than teasing. You know, I think that, that clearly, um, you know, is obviously a bigger problem. But I think you are also very right in saying that if that particular child who becomes the victim is vulnerable, that makes, you know, I think the bully recognizes that. It's, it's, you know, a little bit like um, an animal and its prey. You know, they recognize the weakness. They might recognize the vulnerability. And so it becomes much more of a game for the bully. Um, and it can, it can absolutely mushroom into a, a terrible situation. Yeah, a friend of mine's father always said, you know who you can do it to. You know
2: who you can do it to in business. You know who you can do it to in the situation that you described. And it is that kind of animal instinct. So, I mean, given that, and I think that, and as a social worker, I think it's important to prepare the children to be prepared for the bullying. You know, we focus on the person who's doing the bullying and what we can do to prevent them from doing it. But maybe we have to spend more time On the person who's being bullied to help them to offset whatever bullying they're experiencing at school, and I think you also—I want to—one other thing that you said: the bullying has to be consistent. There has to be a consistency to the behavior. But I thought of another piece, and doesn't like if you have a gang of kids doing it. It's not just one-on-one. I mean, that seems to me that's a piece of it as well. If you have six kids are going after one kid every day, or you know, consistently when they're in school. That's another piece to it, too, that I would
3: think defines bullying or the bulliers. Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think your point is is a really good one as far as really wanting to focus on the victim and help the victim because um, I you know I recall one of our the amazing essays in in this book bullying under attack that's called rhino skin where the mother comes up with this term and it's very powerful and very helpful for her daughter to create this kind of shield against this assault. And, you know, I think kids have to realize that just because someone is saying they are this way, it doesn't make it so. You know, they have to repel these words and realize that they are just words and they don't necessarily hold truth. You know, of course, that's easier said than done. But I think that that's something that, you know, can be very powerful for for kids to understand.
2: And I think you have to, as well, Stephanie, um, prepare your kids that it may happen. And, you know, you talk about rhino skin is a good term. And to be able to tell your parents or whomever is your taking care of you or your guardian or uh, the significant adult in your life to be able to share that with them so that they can help you because these things do come up. I mean, uh, you know, as uh, when you're – and I think it starts in elementary school, obviously. and um, Right. So – yeah,
3: I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that the the victim needs to be able to reach out, and that very often is hard. Um, but I think that you know, w- w- there's another wonderful story that's called How Are You, where this young gal is just feeling so alone and so isolated and feels like no one cares. Her parents don't care, her friends don't care and she has a birthday and she just sits in her room and all of a sudden her mother brings the phone and says, someone is on the phone and wants to talk to you and it's her grandfather and her grandfather says three simple words, how are you? And that just breaks the spell for this young gal and she suddenly feels like, wow, someone really does care and and sometimes that's all it takes. To make you know these victims feel less isolated, um, and that's really really important, and that's why so often the bystander can become the real hero. Um, and we I have think that's uh, a good
2: point because it doesn't always have to be some elaborate treatment program for either the for the victim in this case. Just right, your grandfather saying how are you? Yeah, and that and parents doing the same thing. Exactly. Um, what about? Um, This cyber bullying, where it's we talk about it being constant, and obviously it's not always constant when it's at school, but then getting on the net, and then you hear about
3: these kids committing suicide. Can you comment on that? Yes, that really that is the biggest difference between the bullying that maybe we as children experienced and now what young people are faced with, um, because cyber bullying is. So um, pervasive can be, and it's so difficult to control. Um, and and you definitely are hearing more and more about children who and young people who, as a result of cyberbullying, you know, do take extreme measures, um, which is absolutely, you know tragic. Um, and I think that controlling cyberbullying is, something that I don't think we have figured out what to do about it and it, and I think that it's an enormous problem. I know that some states have passed laws trying to, you know make this not a, you know curtail this and, and control it. But I think that again, parents can be a, a very big, force in helping their children um, realize, again, that just because someone is saying go kill yourself, that doesn't make it the right thing to do, and these young people who are committing suicide, I mean, I don't have to tell you as a social worker, but it is it is a much more complex um, situation, and although it may seem to be the bullying that is creating the the effect, um, it, it's very often much more complicated.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's the relationship that the child or the teen has with her parents and her siblings, and it's a whole, usually a family affair, and yeah, it's not just the bully or the one who's doing the bullying and the, and the victim. You know, your, the um, anthology has been described, um, bullying under attack, as an eye-opening anthology. What was, was there anything in it that was eye-opening for you when you initially became involved in the project and, and something that you were, oh, you had this kind of, I never realized this kind of
3: aha experience? Absolutely. I mean, I, as the editor of both Teen Inc. magazine, which is, um, I should just say, uh, on the web and a monthly magazine as well, uh, com, if any, uh, teenagers are out there or, or parents who'd be interested in checking out our website. It it has <laughs> pieces written by teens exclusively and all teens can get involved because there are no staff writers. Um, and as a as a result of our magazine, which has been in existence now for 25 years, we started realizing that we were getting more and more pieces that were dealing with this topic. And <clears throat> so we... Compiled all of these pieces together into this anthology um, and I think that what was the aha moment for me was how many kids are out there I mean it was thousands and thousands of essays that came pouring in uh, when we put the call out that um, you know kids just really want to be heard and recognized um, and validated that they are not alone. Um, and we now even have videos on our website of some of these young people who have been bullied um, and have been bystanders, which are very, very powerful as well. So it is really the outpouring of um, need that these young people have that has been just amazing to me.
2: And you talk about the bystander. Let's, let's I, I want to discuss that because... Maybe again, you know, I, I can probably, if I r- really think about it when I was a kid, I have been a bystander. You know, you, you're on the playground, we, you know, and you watch something going on, as, let's say, in middle school. And what are you supposed to do as the bystander? I know they have an initiative here in New York State, actually. I see the advertisement, they're government advertisements for kids. To help them to figure out what to do if they are a bystander, what can you do to help? And I'm sure, I mean, you, you talk about these thousands of responses you got. Did you get a lot of responses from kids who are bystanders who said, I wished I'd done something, but I didn't?
3: Or how Absolutely. Do I do it? Absolutely. I mean, I honestly, you know, feel for the bystander because I, you know, we, as you were just clearly saying, we have all been bystanders. I mean, um, it's it's very hard to take that step and get involved. Um, you know, one is fearful that you will be bullied, that you will be picked on, that you will be called a tattletale. Um, and for young people, this is huge because being a tattletale is like, you know, the worst thing possible. But if it's a case of another, you know, child or young person being harassed you know, if we don't make that step, you know, we could just as easily be the victim the next time. And I think that's what's pushed a lot of these kids to take action. Um, We have a wonderful piece in the anthology called Four Chairs Down of a gal sitting there and watching another um, teenager being bullied, and she just can't do anything. And it's, it's, Horrible for her. You know, she desperately wants to do something and finally someone else does something and that makes her realize, you know, I guess I, I could have done something, but it's a very thoughtful and real story about how hard it really is to
2: take that step Um That's a good example, and and as you're talking, I'm thinking about, well, perhaps bystanders need to get together. As bullies get together, and bystanders, when they witness something like that ongoing in their school, for instance, we're not going to allow this to happen. I mean, they can also be afraid for themselves, even physically, too, some kid who steps in. That's an issue. I mean, you have to address that as well. But um, So the bystanders can be as powerful as the bullies
3: absolutely you know it's funny you should say that because we included one essay that's that's i can't re- recall the title of it but basically this young gal looks around and she says you know if we all banded together we would be more than any bully out there you know kind of let's band together exactly and, they have the numbers yeah they definitely do and i and i think that's You know, that's something that I think can happen within schools. I think there's a great growing awareness of how horrible the results of bullying can be. And to try to empower the kids themselves to take action, I think, can can really, could really turn the tide. Um, I, I think a lot of them feel very isolated, and I think that's, you know, what, Happens with bystanders and with with the kids who may not be bullied and may not be the bully, but they're sort of on the fringes. And um, I think if they, you know, realize that there are a lot of kids like them and how little it can take to really make a difference.
2: Yeah, I think that is one major step that 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 they can take and that parents can encourage as well. Both, you know, we didn't. What do why do people, why do these bullies bully? I mean, you mentioned in the very beginning. Of course, many of them have been bullied themselves or abused themselves, so that's the kind of behavior they're familiar with, and they do it to other kids. But even more specifically, I think you mentioned uh, well in the anthology. You know, race, weight, jealousy;
3: those are some of the, the primary reasons for bullying. Yes, yes. I think I think that you know it can be as large as As one's race and it can be as small as the color of one's shirt um, which really you know makes us see that bullying is just an attempt to have power Um, and you know unfortunately a lot of these bullies you know as you were saying have been bullied and I think it's also you know wanting so desperately to be accepted and they see it as a way very often in junior high you know their friends will like egg them on and they'll say oh okay well this is a way you know that i can i can be you know big person on campus and it doesn't seem so terrible until you know that we have we have a number of pieces actually um, by kids who were bullies and how horrible it was for them to to try to become not the bully because they are you know pigeonholed as the bully and to step back and become what they want to be is is very difficult i think the other very interesting thing is as a former social worker that i that i did notice in one of the stories is that very often what they are bullying about is what they are really afraid of admitting. So could it be something as major as sexual preference? They may be bullying a a kid and saying, you're gay, you're gay, you're gay, and the bully really is gay as well. And and they're trying so desperately not to want to be that that they end up, you know, being horrible to someone who yeah, appears to have that inclination. Sense.
2: Yeah, and that's been my experience in some of these kids who are bullying, and that's a good example, sexual preference, bullying kids because they're gay, um, because they're afraid that they're gay or they are. Right. Um, one, of the, I just, one of the things that I wanted to mention was also, you know, you talk about the bully um, wanting to feel powerful, and this is their way of doing it. Um, if you take them and... a a former bullier and give them the power in terms of helping other bulliers to realize what they're doing, you know, kind of a peer support group or Right. Um, that could work too. I mean I don't know if that was part of the experience that or some of the um reactions that you've gotten from some of the students have that have any of them done there are there any programs like that in the schools?
3: that's that's an amazingly wonderful idea um i i i personally don't know of that but i i think that would be you know that would be phenomenal um mm-hmm. because it really you know could help these bullies realize that you know it's not such a great, I mean, sort of a, a real support group for recovering bullies. <laughs> yeah. And it's another way to get
2: other students or other kids to look up to you. and to, Absolutely. Yeah, and to be powerful in a positive way rather than a negative way. Right. I'm glad you mentioned teeninc.com because that sounds like a really um, a great website for these kids to, to link into. Um, so... Is that the only website that you would... I mean, that's the one that you, that's your website, but... Um, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, that's the one.
3: Um, but as far as other support, um, we do in, in our book, Bullying Under Attack, have a wonderful resource section at the back of the book, which does include other websites that um, deal directly with bullying and support situations that are out there, as well as... Movies and books, um, we had a wonderful forward by um, Lee Hirsch, who was the director and writer of the Bully uh, movie, which I know is, you know, ac- across the nation has had a phenomenal impact Um to help recognize the situation and to, and to really get some action going. Well, Bullying um,
2: Under Attack is definitely an important, an important piece of work, this anthology. We have to say goodbye. But Bullying Under Attack, and uh, Stephanie Meyer, she's, one, she's the editor. We've been talking to her today and her website, or the website, teenink.com. Stephanie, so great talking to you. Thank you so much yeah. for having me on. This was a yeah. pleasure. It's great. You're doing great work for the kids and families and for all of us thank you um i'm katherine zox we have to say goodbye you've been listening to the katherine zox show on voiceamericavariety.com and world talk radio hope you enjoyed yourself today have a great week and we'll see you next wednesday
0: we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the katherine zox show you can listen live every thursday morning at 7 a.m pacific time on the voice america channel